Hi, thanks. Can everyone hear me? Thanks for having me. Normally, I hate when people they start reading, but I'm going to tell a story anyway. Sorry, this little thing is epic. Um, I first met Gary Clark in 2003 at Breadloaf, um, and they always gave him like a, 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 a portion in the conference to come and hype VSC and to talk about it. I was like, what is this? I don't even get it. It's like half residency, half conference. I don't know what that's all about. And I tried to ask him like some questions. He's like, I'm busy fiddling. I don't have time for you. So um, I finally asked him in 2013, again at Breadloaf, and he told me what it was. I said, okay, I'll give this a try. And I've been coming back um, ever since. So thank you to Gary Clark uh, for telling me what VSC was all about. And thanks to Louise and John for having it. Are you sure you can hear me? Because I can't hear me. Okay, I'll just have to trust you on that. <laughs> um, so VSC has been great to me since 2013. There are times that I've come here where I haven't even been a resident. I was reading at Johnson State College and got snowed in by Winter Storm Olympia and they still let me stay. So thank you all very much. I'm gonna read um, one story from each collection. So I'm just gonna read them in chronological order. The first two might have some funny parts. If you feel like laughing, feel free. The last one, you're probably not going to want to laugh. So if you do, something is wrong with you. <laughs> the first story is entitled Push. Um, I'm reading all um, the stories I'm reading from these three collections. I'm reading them because they have objective correlatives in them. And I'm going to be talking about objective correlatives um, tomorrow morning. This story was inspired by Stanley Elkins' A Poetics for Bullies, which is just one of my favorite <laughs> stories. So if you know it, the first paragraph is just gorgeous. You know, it says, I'm pushed to bully, and what I like are mean kids and fat kids. I love nobody loved. And I said, well, what would, you know, what would the circumstances of this story look like if Push had been a girl? So I wrote this story called Push. The teacher's clothes hang off her. She is what the girl's mother calls a skinny mini. Even the girl's sister dresses better. I said skinny mini. <laughs> she gets her clothing from learners, which has not yet become New York and company. When the sister is away at work, the girl slides the magazines out from her sister's hiding place and stares at the models, especially the two black ones. The women are lovely in a way the girl didn't know black women could be. Her mother is not beautiful, neither is her sister, though her sister probably could be if she tried a little harder. When the teacher calls her back after releasing the class into the schoolyard, which is a parking lot for the teachers in the morning, they have to clear their cars out after lunch to make room for the kids to play at recess. The girl does not fully grasp that she has done something wrong. The teacher lets all the other kids go and then says, not you. Did you push Colleen down the last flight of steps on the way out of the building? Mrs. Greenberg asks in such a way that the girl thinks it is entirely possible she's merely curious, after all. The stairwells are painted a deep dark green, which makes it hard to see. The girl wears thick neon laces in her Adidas, and she follows her laces down the stairwell, using them as a light to keep her from crashing into the kid in front of her unless she wants to. Colleen's place is right in front of her. They are both five feet, two inches, but the girl has more hair, which makes her seem taller, so Colleen gets to stand in front. This is size order. Nothing about it ever changes. The girl thinks nothing ever will. 
All day long, there's a small wooden chair to sit in, with one bolt missing and one edge torn away, so that whenever the girl wears tights, which is only on picture day, or when her mother forces her, she gets snagged to the chair. There's always the small metal desk with the fake wooden top. It doesn't lift the way the desks do in the old movies where the kids come to school with lunch pails and apples and where the boys attach mirrors to the front of their shoes so they can look up girls' skirts. Okay, the part about the mirrors and the shoes isn't from a movie. The girl's mother's boyfriend has told this story more than once, claiming it was something he'd done in his boyhood days, and the girl believes him. She has seen a picture of her mother as a schoolgirl with a bright, clean face and mischievous eyes and has come to think that the kids in her mother's day were probably all up to something. In any case, she likes her mother's boyfriend, who she has been trained to call uncle. He is her favorite of all the mother's boyfriends she calls uncle, and she is willing to believe anything of him. But back to the teacher and the question now. Yes? Yes. The girl sometimes has trouble paying attention, but this happened at a time before kids started coming down with ADHD the way they used to come down with colds and flus. The girl goes undiagnosed, undrugged, and is merely scolded by parents and teachers to pay better attention. See what I mean? The girl decides that the truth is to be used only as a last resort. She says, no, Mrs. Greenberg, I didn't push Colleen down the stairs. I have a perfectly good set of eyes, the teacher says. I saw you do it. Okay, the girl says. Though she is willing to lie, she is equally willing to capitulate. It all depends on her mood and where it takes her. Okay, the teacher says. That's it? Okay, I pushed her, the girl says. It was an accident. The two of them are still standing in the schoolyard where kids loiter and teachers look out of place. There are games of jump rope, skelly, freeze tag, and double dutch. The girl watches kids run and then stop as if paralyzed. One boy is tagged in mid-stride. He freezes with one arm pumped outward, teetering with one foot raised, waiting for someone to unfreeze him. The girl imagines herself joining in unannounced, heroically tagging the boy to unfreeze him, saving him from the clutches of a frozen life. By now, she truly believes that pushing Colleen was accidental. The girl lives by her whims. I don't believe you, the teacher says. Follow me. She follows the teacher back to their classroom on the fourth floor. The teacher mumbles as she unlocks the classroom door and turns on the lights. The chalkboards are clean. For the last half hour, kids beg for the chance to wash the boards. The girl has done this before, but only once. She remembers the privileged feeling of standing at the front of the classroom with a basin of warm water and a thick porous sponge at her disposal. First, she erased the boards, wiping away the day, spelling words, math problems, and penmanship lessons in the teacher's looping cursive. Then she dipped the sponge and squeezed it out. Staring at the top of the board, she pressed it against the hard slate and dragged it downward, the grayish-green chalkboard turning gleaming wet, black. After several vertical strokes took her to the edge of the board, she'd looked back and seen the board drying in streaks, swaths of water quickly evaporating, as if she'd never been there at all. The teacher waves her over, and even though the girl expects to be struck, she comes. These are the days when everyone has a pass to beat up kids, teachers and neighbors alike, the days when parents thank you for doing it and then bring their kids home and tear them up some more. The girl has seen the teacher yank a boy by the ear to push him into the corner. The teacher points to the nearest seat and says to the girl, you will sit here for the next hour to think over what you have done. Open your, your composition book to a fresh page and record your reflections. What does that mean, the girl asks. She is thinking of reflection like in the mirror. And anyway, the teacher lost her when she said the girl had to stay a whole hour. 
She's supposed to go straight home after school and wait in the apartment until her mother and sister get there. Although she usually lollygags playing in the schoolyard and buying candy in the bodega, she has never gone home an entire hour late. I want you to explain why you constantly pick on Colleen. You're nothing but a bully. Perhaps if you can see that in black and white, you'll stop tormenting the poor girl. The girl does not think of herself as mean or as a bully. She doesn't even dislike Colleen. It is just what they do. The girl doesn't think Colleen minds as much as Mrs. Greenberg seems to. The teacher looks at her watch and slides out of her coat. Since I am giving you an hour of my unpaid time, you'd better make it good. The pressure, the pressure. The girl has never been good at language arts. She prefers science and the solidity of the earth as she has come to know it. She can stare at the cutaways of the earth, revealing core, mantle, and crust for hours. When she finishes her workbook assignments before the allotted time runs out, she draws volcanoes, paying close attention to her rendering of ash clouds and magma chambers. She doesn't know what Mrs. Greenberg wants her to say, but she opens her notebook to a fresh page. Staring at the chalkboard, which looks lonely, with no student, no teacher, no dust, and no words, the girl thinks that if she could write her thoughts all across it, she might be able to produce something beautiful. The teacher hangs her coat on the back of her adult-sized chair, and the girl realizes she is still wearing hers. She slips her arms out of the sleeves and drapes it over her shoulders, wearing it like a cape, like She-Ra, Princess of Power. Mrs. Greenberg carries her lesson plan to the boards at the front of the room. The ones at the back are covered with construction paper and begins copying the next day's spelling words on a far left, far left board. The girl thinks about copying the words now and getting a head start. When all the kids are present, Mrs. Greenberg has to leave the assignments up on each board until every kid has copied them, which can take a while because the kids have to be called up in shifts, the ones from the back rows and the ones with poor eyesight coming forward and crouching with their notebooks balanced on their knees as they get as close to the board as possible. Last year, the girl had 28 classmates. This year, she has 44. Pretending to write what Mrs. Greenberg wants, the girl jots down the spelling words. The third word down is cower. The fifth word is intimidate. The girl stops copying when she realizes that the teacher is trying to make a point. When Mrs. Greenberg writes at the chalkboard, chalkboard, it is easy to see just how poorly her clothes fit. The girl can see the extra material at the back of her suit jacket billowing out over her waist. The girl's sister works for a company that pays next to nothing, but her clothes fit better than the teacher's. Mrs. Greenberg's shoulder pads are not at the shoulder. They hang down over her biceps. The teacher's sleeves are too long. When her arms are down by her sides, her thumbs disappear, the cuffs swallowing them. The girl is feeling charitable, and so she decides that although the teacher is definitely to blame for her invisible thumbs, she should not be held responsible for the shoulder part. Anyone can see Mrs. Greenberg has weak shoulders. The teacher's pantyhose are the old-fashioned kind, the kind with the little lines down the back of them, the kind the white women in those old black and white movies wear with the skirt suits whose hems fall way past their knees. The seams at the back of the teacher's pantyhose do not follow down her leg in a straight line. They curve around her calves, twisting all the way to the front. Mrs. Greenberg is bow-legged. Perhaps the girl thinks this is why her stockings are always crooked. The stockings make her think of the movies Uncle always brings over. Every time he comes, he brings a big black garbage bag stuffed full of dirty newspaper, and inside the bag, there's always a VCR. He takes out the VCR and hooks it up to the big floor model television in the living room where everyone can watch. 
He brings popcorn for the stove and puts in tapes of old movies, of films he said were made when he was little. The girl is a sucker for these movies. She likes Rosalind Russell, Maureen O'Hara, Doris Day. She will watch old movies until her eyes are dry. They sit on the plastic-covered couch, he and the girl and the sister and the mother, watching women telling men to put their lips together and blow, having a good time until the mother crosses her arms and says, I thought I was the one you came to see. Mrs. Greenberg speaks over her shoulder. How are you making out, she asks. I don't know what to write, the girl says. Mrs. Greenberg turns from the chalkboard, which is half filled with tomorrow's lessons. All right, she says, try this. How would you feel if the roles were reversed? What if it were you that was always being pushed or shoved or picked on? What if you were always Colleen's target? How would you like it then? What do you get out of torturing an innocent girl? Think about answering at least one of those questions and see if you come up with something to say. The teacher raises her eyebrows, implying profundity. The girl remains unimpressed. It could never be the other way around. Colleen is not a leading lady. The girl likens her to the brunettes in the old movies, the ones who never get the guy. The girl is thinking of Ruth Hussey in the Philadelphia story and Janice Rule in Bell, Book, and Candle. There is always a Katherine Hepburn or a Kim Novak to tempt the Jimmy Stewarts of the world. Colleen is the kind to get attention only by default. Though she can hardly remember how it all began, the girl's first push truly was accidental. Mrs. Greenberg assembled the class in two rows by the coat closet, boys on the left and girls on the right. Colleen was in front of the girl, Abdul to her left. As they filed out of the classroom and down the hall to the far stairwell, the girl began to lag behind. She had spotted a small reddish stain in the center of Colleen's skirt. It bloomed brightly as if someone had cut her, as if she'd sat on a tube of paint. Entranced by the blooming, spreading stain, it had no edges, it looked like an ink blot, like something the girl's sister had shown her from an old college psychology textbook before she dropped out to make money. The girl lifted her feet mechanically, walking with legs made of wood, knowing Colleen knew things she had yet to learn, wondering if she should follow Colleen more closely so that no one else might see. For surely the girl hadn't noticed the stain when they'd first lined up. When closing the space between them, the girl stepped too close, right on the back of Colleen's LA gear sneakers, making Colleen stumble and slide with the, collide with the girl in front of her. The girl imagined them as a line of dominoes toppling from the one accidental push, but it did not happen like that. Colleen righted herself quickly, but not fast enough to fool Mrs. Greenberg, who walked alongside the class, keeping close to the middle, a vantage point that allowed her to survey the entire line. She cut her eyes at the girl, saying nothing, chalking it up to clumsiness, to an accident. An accident it had been that first time. After that, it simply felt too good to stop. First, there was the closeness of Colleen's body when the girl pushed her, stepping close enough to smell the grease against Colleen's scalp. Second, there was the genate that wafted from Colleen's collar. When the girl stepped against Colleen, she saw Colleen begging her mother for a splash of cologne from the yellow bottle in the hopes that wearing it would make someone finally notice her. Stepping against the back of Colleen's sneakers was stepping into her life, a life the girl guesses to be less complicated than her own. Colleen, the girl thinks, has a father and no unrelated uncles. When she goes home, someone is always waiting. 
The hour draws near. For the past 10 minutes, the girl and the teacher have been sitting quietly, trying not to look at each other. The teacher begins to straighten up. Did you find any answers? I think so, the girl says, though her page is still blank. She takes up her number two pencil and presses the lead deep into the paper, attempting to copy the glamour of Mrs. Greenberg's cursive. Dear Colleen, I'm sorry I pushed you down the stairs today and all the other times. I would not like it if you did it back to me. I hope you don't do it because pushing is wrong and if you do it just because I did it, then we will both be wrong, which will add up to be more like negative two than zero. She looks over her words, feeling no remorse, yet hoping this is what her teacher wants. She knows that this is not one of those times where the answer will become clear when she grows older, knows some questions are meant to go unanswered, like why she has so many uncles if her mother is an only child, like why uncle cannot live with them, or at least leave his VCR. If you have any last thoughts, you have five minutes to get them down, the teacher says. What it really comes down to is the rightness of the push. When they are going down the stairs and the girl pushes Colleen down the steps or forces her into the railing, the girl feels a part of something larger than herself. She believes, deep down, that Colleen expects it, in fact, cannot live without it. On the rare occasions when the girl has not indulged in a minor act of violence, she has caught Colleen sneaking wounded glances at her. Though Mrs. Greenberg can never understand it, the girl knows that Colleen also lives for the skirmish. There were 45 kids in Mrs. Greenberg's class. If it were not for the girl's attentive violence, Colleen would be a nobody. She'd go unnoticed and uncalled on by Mrs. Greenberg lost in a sea of indistinguishable black kids in a public elementary school with an overcrowding problem. The girl draws a line through her apology and turns to a fresh page. Dear Colleen, you don't have to thank me. This one is a short short. It's called The Luckiest Man in the World. It's also set in Brooklyn. First two books are set in my native New York. The last one's not. The luckiest man in the world. The titis are in the kitchen fighting over the pollo. They are twins, Alma and Lara, and they fight over everything, like who's the youngest. Lara says it's her by 10 minutes, and whose food tastes better. They are making everyone wait to eat. When we get there, me, my twin Cheo, my younger brother Luis, and my father, my aunt's boyfriends are smoking at the table, forlorn, like two porputos as my aunts try to make them say whose arrocompoyo is better. The titis beckon us into the kitchen. Yali warns us with her eyes not to get embroiled in a battle, but we are hungry and we don't care. Which is better, Titi Alma asks, coming at me and Cheo with spoons heaping with rice, olives, and chicken. We frown hard, giving what we hope are discerning looks. We tell her we can't know after just one bite. Which do you prefer, Titi Lara asks, covering Luis's eyes with one hand and pushing a spoon toward his mouth with the other. I need to taste it again, he says. We are smarter than the average 10-year-olds. We vacillate. We refuse to conform until we have eaten our fill. Titi Lara catches on and drives us out of the kitchen, chasing after us with a wooden spoon. Go play outside. This is fine with us. Venaka Yali, I yell. She can't go, Titi, uh, Titi Alma says over her shoulder. You know she hurt herself, Titi Lada reminds us. 
I had forgotten Yali's broken fingers and how I was responsible for them. I'd been trying to teach her a trick on the swings the last time we were here. I'd pushed her too hard, and she came down too fast, getting three of her fingers caught in the metal chain links right at the moment when she should have done a 360 on the swing and jumped over the fence like I showed her. I look at my brothers, then I look at Yali, her brown face with the baby hair brushed back from her forehead and secured by a headband. Her thick eyebrows and the small dark hairs that crept along her upper lip made her beautiful to me. Thanks to me, she had lost two front teeth in the second grade, and her new adult teeth had not grown in until last summer. I love the new toothy smile she smiles at me when she shows me her broken fingers and says, go ahead, Coquito, no me importa. I'll keep her company, I say, nudging my brothers away. You go without me. You don't want to keep her company, Chael whispers. You just want to suck her tetas. And she doesn't even have any yet, Luis says. Cállate en ventejos, I say, pushing them away. Cuidate, puto, Chael says, seriously. He will not condescend to remind me that he is older by four hours. My whole family treats those four hours as though they are four years. In their eyes, I am a lesser version of my brother. Chael was greedy in the womb, and I got all the leftovers. So I'm small and scrawny with a widespread face and eyes like a frog, and my family is not kind. They never call me by my real name, Christopher. Instead, they call me Coquito, after that little frog that only lives in El Yunque, the rainforest in Puerto Rico. We, Yali, and I go to her bedroom to play until we can eat. Does it hurt, I ask stupidly, looking at the three broken finger fingers wrapped in gauze and banded in thick white tape. She looks at me. She is too kind to call me tonto, the idiot that I am. I can't jump rope, she says. I can't even braid my own hair. Who did that then, I ask, pointing stupidly to her braided hair. Constanza did it for me at lunchtime today. See, she says, turning her back to me. That braid of hers is a treacherous thing. Long and black, braided loose and flimsy, shining dark. A small red rubber band contained all of it except for a little tail that curled under at the bottom. I had only touched Yali's hair once in my life to cut a chunk of it off as a prank and a sign of my love for her. The titis had to cut three inches off Yali's hair to even out the damage I had done. That was two years ago. I touch it now and feel like it belongs to me. Minutes pass in which I say nothing to her. It is as much a surprise to me when I hear my thoughts given, uh, given sound. Let's play doctor, I say. Yali looks at me warily. I had played too many pranks on her to be angry at her skepticism. She had a right. En serio, I say, and cross my heart. Okay, she says. Doctora, I don't feel well, I say. Where does it hurt, she asks. Everywhere, I groan, especially here. I take her good hand and put it on me. Yali's eyes widen, her thick bushy eyebrows shoot straight up her forehead. A fear in her eyes makes me hold on to her. Yali pulls away, taking her hand with her. I put it back again. What if someone comes, she asks, shaking her head, that braid of hers flicking over her shoulder. I am sure that no one will, because the adults have been playing bachata and salsa in the living room for some time now. Tito Nieves, Juan Luis Guerra, La India. Preciosa is playing now. My father always played it to make the titis cry. Hearing Preciosa tells me they have forgotten about us. Está bien, Yali, I say, pressing her hand to keep it there. It's weird, she squirms. Wait, I say, don't take your hand away. Why not? 
It's making me feel better. She looks at me with her head tilted to the side, like maybe she is seeing through me. Medicina, I say. Seguro? Si, I say. Claro. Let me see it, Yali says, after a few minutes of rubbing back and forth across my zipper. You let me see first. No, she says, resolute, reaching for my zipper. Then you have to let me feel. I pull her by the hem of her dress, by the scalloped laces sewn onto denim until she is on top of me. It's awkward, her knees bump my thighs, but I play it cool so she won't know that now I've got her here, I don't know what to do with her. Nadia como ella is playing in the sala. I move under her, trying to catch the strain of it, holding her to make her copy my movements. I have one hand on her hip, the other is touching the tail of her black braid. The titis are in the kitchen still arguing over the two identical dishes. By now, my father is drunk and asleep on the couch. The boyfriends are playing dominoes and smoking at the kitchen table. My brothers are outside playing on the stoop, ignoring the girls jumping rope in front of them to get their attention and grabbing at the girls who walk by and pretend to ignore them. I can look into Yali's wide open eyes and see all of them with this newly acquired vision. What I see does not impress me. None of them are where I am. None have what I have. None can feel what I am feeling at this moment. I have it, suerte, luck. I am a man now, a lucky man, even though I'm only 10. None of them are as lucky as me. I am not asleep, I am not drunk. No one is keeping me waiting or making me play stupid games. I am right here. Close your eyes, Yali says. Why? So I can see you. But I could not close my eyes. She could disappear any minute and I'd be on the stoop with Cheo and Luis. And I want to be right here with Yali's thick eyebrows, her brown face, the tiny hard buds of her breast straining under her blouse, her two legs cupping my hips and pressing the thin panel of her cotton panties against me, her small hand on my shoulder, the wide eyes looking down at me warm and trusting and curious as she bites her lips to keep quiet, and that black braid entangling my hand, the silk of it rubbing my palm and five fingers. That braid makes everything real. I grab it lightly, just to make sure. All right, here's a sad one. And the cover also tells you, sad, dead guy. So I'm reading the title story, which is inspired by the picture that I just showed you. The posters go up immediately. They search in all weather. They harass the media for coverage. They leave the light on outside. They do not touch their answering machine. They keep the message exactly the same. They supply the authorities with recent photos, with medical and dental records, with everything they ask. They do all they can think of. They never rest. They never tire. They never lose hope. They take time off, calling in vacation and sick days so that they could stay home and wait, so that they can go out and search, so that they can focus on what's most important. So understanding their friends and neighbors, the whole neighborhood turns out again and again to help them search. There are flyers, cadaver dogs, groups pairing off with flashlights, t-shirts and buttons, posters and ribbons. They turn their house over to the recovery enterprise, transforming their den, basement, and garage into a headquarters to take the calls that stream in and handle the volunteers who show up. 
Her sister and brother-in-law are a godsend for the two weeks they're in town. They drive in from out of state, ready to help. Her sister keeps an eye on their younger son, supplies coffee and donuts to the volunteers. Her brother-in-law mans the phones, listens to the callers, and handles the cranks. It's not as if he's been misplaced. It's nothing like losing one's keys. It's not as simple as retracing one's steps. He has not been lost, but the proper word is too dirty a word that makes it all too real, makes them dread instead of hope. Whose fault is it? He was on no one's watch, less than a block between the school bus drop-off point and home, grabbed somewhere in between. They put up more posters each time they leave the house. How she hates to see them preyed upon by the elements blowing down the street, crumpled at the curb, blasted by the rain, faded by the sun. Stapled to lampposts and trees, the posters are no match for the passage of time. The sight of one dumped into the public garbage can on their street, her son's face peering through the metal latticework, is enough to send her back indoors where she will lock herself in and not venture out for days. It's no better inside. She cannot look anywhere without seeing him. His face is in her wallet, preserved behind a plastic sheath. She sees his picture on the refrigerator, peeking out beneath a strawberry-shaped magnet. Scattered through the foyer are all of his toys. She sees them every time she hangs her coat. She refuses to let their younger son play with them. She tells herself they have too many moving pieces, too many small parts a young child could swallow. But truly, she just cannot stand to see a single toy moved from its spot. Only by leaving each one exactly where her older son left it can she maneuver through her day, logging into her computer and searching for news, printing the never-ending flyers, closing her eyes to all of the false leads that cruelly continue to come in. <coughs> Excuse me. They count his absence in days, the way parents count the age of infants in months, hoping the incremental tallying will somehow make time slow down make the seconds add up less quickly. They use the holidays as milestones. Halloween and Thanksgiving come and go. Surely, they predict, he'll be home by Christmas. They decorate, slip presents under the tree. When Christmas comes and goes, they hold out for New Year's Day. 30 days, 75, 120 days and still counting, 183 days. Saying it that way makes it seem like so much less than half a year. Whose fault is it? Who would do such a thing? They blame television. They blame drugs and pornography for warping the minds of many. They blame sexual deviance and mental illness, greed, selfishness, loneliness, perversion. There are any number of reasons. The guessing only makes it worse. Too late do they learn to be wary. They peer into the eyes of every person they meet. Anyone between the ages of 18 and 80 is fair game. The two men who haul their garbage. The guy who delivers their pizza. It doesn't even have to be a stranger. Everyone is suspect. The young man who shovels their neighbor's snow. The youth pastor who dresses better than he should. The teacher's aide who once gave their son a ride home. It could be a woman, she interjects. She latches onto the idea, conjures conjures the tale of a desperate woman who looks at their boy and sees the child she lost long ago. Their boy is just the age her miscarried child would have been had it lived. In a crazed moment, she steals him. She calls him by her own son's name, forces him to answer, 
Soon she doesn't remember that he's not really hers. Don't talk like that, her husband says. I can't help it, she says. Truly, she can't. She can't stop talking like this, can't stop thinking like this. By now, she knows the statistics, knows the likely profile. Her brain is filled with information she never wanted. 80% of abductors have normal IQs or higher. There are over 600,000 registered sex offenders in the United States. Most abductors are not dirty old men, as popularly believed. 70% are younger than 35 years of age. 70% are younger than her. She soothes herself with the safest of fantasies, hoping for the least of all the evils. By now, she knows how slim the chance is, but she prefers to think of this desperate woman who would treat their son like her own. Is she feeding him properly? Is he warm enough at night? <coughs> He'll be wearing new clothes when we get him back. Some weird tacky getup she's dressed him in. Some dowdy thing she thinks matches. Their older boy's clothes wait in the hamper. They won't wash them until he's back. He has missed three haircuts and one dental appointment. She wonders aloud if the desperate woman will see to it. He rises from the table, his hands covering his ears. He doesn't sing or hum to tune her out but he might as well. In no time, he is halfway down the hall and into the bedroom that they no longer share. She hears the door slam shut. That's right, leave, she says, run. She searches the kitchen cabinet, looking for a little liquid courage. Where is all the damn liquor? Her younger son enters the kitchen carrying a green ogre action figure in one hand and a gray plastic donkey in the other. Where did you get those? On the floor. You put those right back where you found them. He shakes his head. I want to play with them. They're your brothers. She snatches the toys from his hands and runs out to the foyer where she scans the floor and tries to remember where they were meant to go. Where were they? How were they? Show me. Her younger son bursts into tears. Get in here and show me, she demands. Her younger son points to an area near the front window and another near the doorway. Which one, she asks, holding both toys aloft. He points to the spot by the front entrance and mumbles. The greenie goes there. She lays the green ogre down near the umbrella stand. Like this? She kneels on the carpet and positions him on his back, remembering she had seen him that way, his hand stretched up toward the ceiling. <coughs> she looks at him lying like that and knows something is wrong. The ogre's right hand should be positioned slightly lower than its left. She adjusts the toy until she's satisfied. Guided by her son, she crawls to the spot by the window, maneuvering around the other strewn toys, a video game controller, a soft foam football, a tiny-headed dinosaur, and places the donkey on its side as she had last remembered seeing it. Only when both toys are in their proper places does she stand up and walk away. Her younger son cries anew. But I want to play with him! Wait until your brother gets back, she says, as if his older brother is just down the street at a friend's house as if he will be back any minute now, or at least in time for dinner, as if the street lights coming on at all of the nearby curbs will be the signal for him that it is for all of the other children, urging them inside for the night. Her younger son retreats to the kitchen and kicks the chairs. His tears become shrieks as he demands to know where his big brother is and why he can't play with the toys. The urge to soothe him is strong, but she resists. In his eyes, she sees her lost boy looking back, she calls for her husband, asks him to calm the boy, but it is too late. 
The younger son hurts himself with crying, strangles himself on saliva, coughs and chokes on his tears. Over his head, they look at one another and make their decision. How are they to focus on recovering their lost boy if they have to worry about this one too? They cannot love him right now. Wisely, they refrain. It's not fair with the older one missing. So they pack him up, tell him he is going to visit with his aunt and uncle. They let him take as many of his own toys as he would like. They promise to see him soon, but they never tell him when. They are not the first to suffer loss. They try to keep it all in perspective, to think of the myriad things that have been lost, such as the Ark of the Covenant, the city of Atlantis, the Dead Sea Scrolls, El Dorado, the Holy Grail, Amelia Earhart somewhere over the Pacific, Pompeii buried beneath volcanic ash, the RMS Titanic at the bottom of the sea. Other lost things are lost slowly over time rather than in one fell swoop, such as loss of feeling of life and limb, loss of blood, loss of memory, loss of looks, of faith and time, loss of sanity, teeth lost under the pillow, long lost relatives ignored, forgotten, and pretended away. They make these lists to humble themselves, remembering the way their parents attempted to cure picky eating habits with reminders of children starving in Africa. But the shaming tactic doesn't work. Try as they might to think of others who have it worse, all that they can think of is themselves. The missing, the absence, the waiting takes its toll. In the beginning, they spend all of their time searching, but the exhaustion of daily life has overtaken them. They cannot do nothing but search. They must eat, they must sleep. Certainly they do not indulge, no parties, no movies, no dancing, but once in a while they do turn on the television. They opt for marathons, I Love Lucy, Twilight Zone, The Honeymooners, and sit through them unblinking. If ever they forget, lose themselves in a moment, and laugh at something on the screen, they use these momentary lapses as ammunition, firing against each other. How can you laugh at a time like this? How can you eat? How can you sleep? They hate each other for their weakness, for the living that muscles through. Blame is the glue that keeps them together. They shuttle it between them, neither one able to shoulder it alone. Their first child was born to bind them, to transform them from couple into family, yet his absence is what renders them inseparable. They cannot endure this without each other. Splitting up is too simple a solution far too easy to buckle beneath the strain of it all. If one of them should leave before their boy returns, neither one wants to miss the homecoming. So she moves into their older son's bedroom and he stays put. He will not go and she will not make him. They cannot afford it. Their paid time off has run out. They've used up all their leave. They're depleting their savings. Soon they will be eating away at the money set aside for their retirement. They are in too deep for either of them to take a step alone. They're stuck, stuck here, stuck in this time, stuck together. Whose fault is it? It's been so long now they no longer know. Worse than mourning is this waiting that never ends. No longer so, so supportive, I'm sorry, no longer so understanding their supporters. The encouraging letters from people they have never met stop coming in batches. Only a handful now trickle in. The media has moved on, covering newer stories. Their neighbors, who have long since returned to their own lives, pester them to say the words. <coughs> 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 
their friends, relatives, and loved ones who wanted them to remain hopeful now want them to admit that the worst has come. There is no more pretending. 300 days now. So much time has passed. Too much to expect anything good. There are people who can help them, their supporters say. Professionals to whom they can turn. Therapists, pastors, prayer circles, grief counselors. But they'd prefer to keep their grief to themselves. They don't want to share their misery, hand it off to others, or have it counseled away. It's all they have left of them. They keep it to themselves, feeding and sucking on who they are, the parents of a lost boy. Their status gives them a get-out-of-jail-free card to be miserable, to be any way they want. Their misery is nourishing. They fill up on it. Rather than put it away, they prefer to live in limbo, in this new waiting world where they have not wronged each other, in this world where no one cares about all of the ways they have erred. In this limbo life, the only thing matters is their boy. They do not have to be good people. They are not held accountable for what they say and do. As the parents of the lost boy, they are entitled to a break. Deep in the deepest deepness of their hearts, there lies a relief to which they will never own up. This consolation that just right now, they do not have to look at themselves too closely. They've never been perfect parents to begin with, but there is no time now for past hurt, no room for grudges, no space to allow old resentments or unfinished business. To nurse wounds from their private lives at a time like this is pettiness, plain and simple. Their boy is all that matters. Those times when he turned to other women, many other women, many other times, the one time she turned to one other man deliberately to balance the scale, all those times when they chose to hurt each other with indifference, negligence, and silence are now packed away with the summer clothes that they have finally washed, the ones their older son will have outgrown by the time they get him back. Those wounds are tucked into the trunk with the clothes they will save for their remaining son to grow into. Those hurts are wedged in tightly among the mothballs. They will deal with those later, unpack the hurts, and air everything out. For now, they will simply stay. He loses sleep. Earlier that afternoon, she saw a discarded poster. Now her crying keeps him awake all night, drywall and plaster no match for her tears. He gets up from the bed they no longer share and crosses to his older son's room to check on her. He hasn't minded the new sleeping arrangements. Secretly, he blames her a little more than himself for what has happened. But he isn't thinking this when he touches her wet face. They'd agreed to abstain, unable to bear the idea of sex at a time like this, feeling like perverts every time they sought to console themselves with their bodies or took pleasure in one another. But tonight, he decides, is an exception. He lifts her, she is so light now, and carries her into their bedroom, settling her into a bed from which she has too long been absent. Into the dark, against the curve of his neck, she whispers, find me, urges him on, saying, I want you to lose me and then find me. She is trying to say what she cannot say, but lost in a moment of rekindled pleasure, all he hears is what sounds like her talking crazy. They have sad, sorrowful sex, making a love that leaves them feeling worse. When they are through, their thoughts remain troubled as ever. They hate and they love. They do not know why, but they feel it and they are in agony. Immediately after, she peels him off her like a top sheet and slips from his embrace, making it to the other room without having to be carried. <coughs> she tucks herself back into the other bed, the one too small and narrow for her body. 
The other night, she'd fallen asleep in the den in front of the TV while watching a special on Lost Cities. She'd tuned in just as a row of plaster casts in the shape of human bodies was being shown. The narrator said that the victims were in situ, still lying in the positions they'd been in when they'd died. She'd powered off the television after that, unable to watch anymore. Now she imagines that their home is one of those homes in that Roman city that the archaeologists found lost under layers of civilization, and her body is one of the bodies they discovered buried beneath the ash. Her older son's return will be her excavation. That is when she will be unearthed and brought once more to the surface and to the light. Right now she is buried beneath the tephra. She is an artifact for study. Who will inject the plaster, the resin, so that she can take shape and discover who she used to be? In this room, she is free to count her losses. She was 10 years old when she lost a birthday card with a $10 bill taped inside. 15 when she lost her first ever camera. 19 when she lost her virginity, and she still wants it back. But no other loss compares to the loss of one small boy, and losing him makes her feel all of the other losses once more. Each loss is a reprimand, a reminder of her helplessness. Each loss is a disorienting thing. Each loss its own little death. She feels each loss so keenly, huddling there beneath her older son's blanket, crushed and cowered by the loss of all lost things. He knocks, pushes open the unlocked door. He comes carrying her planner and sees the covered mound on the body, on the bed that is her body, hidden and shrouded beneath her son's thin blanket. <coughs> he turns on the lamp by the bed, pulling on the tiny starfish at the end of the chain. She smooths his, he smooths his hands over her silhouette, touching the prone and still body, trying to find where she begins. He searches her out beneath the covers, finds the edge of the blanket, and slowly tugs. Bit by bit, he reveals her, bringing head, shoulder, arms, torso, and all the rest to light until no part of her is left lost beneath until she has been unearthed. He has found her, just as she'd asked. She blinks at the brightness of the room. Maybe we made a mistake, too. Against her lips, he presses a finger that seems to say, perhaps we made a mistake. But by now, there have been too many mistakes for us to count. She makes room, and he climbs into the twin-sized bed beside her, squeezing in and pressing his back against the wall until they both fit. Together, they make a plan for the future. They want to be happy again. They do not know when they will finally get their lost son back, but they will all need a fresh start whenever he returns. In the meantime, their younger son must come home. They agree to collect him first thing in the morning. They don't want to lose him to another day. Refusing to look at all of the squares filled with X's, marking the days their older son has been gone, they slip past the months at a glance portion of the calendar and instead go straight to the back of the book to the supplemental pages for names and numbers. The year at a glance calendars for the current and next two years are condensed on the left-hand side, and on the opposite page, a map of the United States is bracketed and coded to delineate the different time zones and area codes. Let them start anew. Poring over the planner, they consider the geometry of states and wonder where they might go. They will pick a state, any state, and once they are all together, they will head out for it and hold it to its promise. There, in that new place, they will all be new people. Where shall it be? They close their eyes. 
he places his hand atop hers and they move their index fingers across the map. Blindly, they point. When they open their eyes, they sound out the name beneath their fingers, trying its newness on for size. Thank you. <laughs>